right. So the, uh, the next quality we want to look at is gentleness, right? Gentleness is the second prerequisite to being a good conflict resolver. Now there's an interesting verse in Galatians 6.1 that uses this word. Paul says, if anyone is caught in a trespass, is overtaken by a fault, you who are spiritual, you who have the spirit, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, it's true that by obeying this passage and uh, trying to restore someone, you could get into a conflict, but if you don't do it with gentleness then you're almost certainly going to be in a conflict. The idea is that when someone has fallen into a particular sin and cannot extricate himself, other Christians are supposed to come along and try to help him or her get out of that mess. Now, this word gentleness or meekness in the Greek has no exact English equivalent. There's two elements to the word. The first element has to do with the first trait, humility. There's a sense in which uh, if you're gentle, you're humble. It's, um, it's sometimes easier to explain what something is by explaining or describing what it isn't. So imagine how effective it would be to try to restore a brother who's fallen into sin uh, with an attitude like this. What a boneheaded move that was. I can't believe you did that. What were you thinking? What's the matter with you? Don't you know? Okay, that's what gentleness is not. Okay? Gentleness does not have a holier-than-thou attitude. Gentleness um, communicates humility. It's sort of like when I counsel people. Uh, I, I might say, look, I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is at. You know, or I might say, the things I'm telling you today, brother, I had to tell myself just last week. Or I might say, I'm counseling you today, but who knows, two months from now, I may be coming to you for advice on something. That's the idea, is that it communicates, that it recognizes that it is, um, it is flawed, it is frail, it is, a, it is capable of sinning and being blinded to its sin. So it doesn't have a holier-than-thou attitude. The second element in gentleness has to do with controlling one's temper, restraining one's anger. Now, anger is given a lot of press in the Bible, more than any other emotion. Fear occurs arguably 389 times. Anger, man's anger, over 500 times. You put God's anger in there, it's like, forget about it. It's like, you know, another 1,200. I mean, the Bible has a lot to say about anger. And, of course, I have to deal as a counselor with anger more than any other sin. Apart from the sin of selfishness, anger is probably the most prevalent sin in all of life. Now, we're going to, again, describe different elements of gentleness, so, number one, gentleness is the ability to distinguish between righteous anger and sinful anger. Every emotion that God has created has power for good and power for evil. Potential for evil. Anger is no exception. You say, Lou, every emotion? Like, really? Yeah. Well, what about jealousy? Did God design jealousy for good? Did, I mean, what about hate? Can that really have? Yeah. Yeah. God is a jealous God, right? And Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, I am uh, jealous with a godly jealousy. Jealousy is basically the fear of being displaced. And the, the Apostle Paul was, was concerned that the Corinthians were going to displace their love for Christ with love for something else. And so he said, I'm afraid for you, right? So even jealousy has a, power. There can be a righteous jealousy and there can be a sinful jealousy. The Holy Spirit is jealous, right? He, he lusts to envy, the King James says. 
What about hatred? You who fear the Lord hate evil. I hate them with perfect hatred. I mean, all of our emotions have power for good and power for evil, and anger is no exception. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride, arrogance, the evil way, and the perverse mouth, Solomon said in Proverbs 8.13, I hate. Now, anger is no exception. In fact, it's really interesting because in this same chapter of Ephesians, you have both the righteous anger and the sinful anger in the same, two, two, three verses apart, right? It says, um, it says, be angry, and it's actually an imperative. This is Ephesians 4, right? It says, be angry in the imperative. It's a 426. And do not sin. Implication being, there are some situations where if you're not angry, something is wrong. And then, just a few verses later, you have the sinful kind of anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. So within three verses, four verses, you have both the righteous kind of anger and the sinful kind of anger. And so if you're going to be gentle, you have to know when your, ang- when your anger is righteous and when it is sinful. Now, um, and, and the Bible says in Hebrews 5.14 that we should be discerning, right? It says, solid food belongs to those who are mature, to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And in this case, we have to know when we're sinfully angry and when we are righteously angry. So um, my friend and colleague, David Pallison, who actually went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago, developed this diagram years ago, and it just sort of helps us understand the difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. So basically, when we are sinfully angry, when we have unholy angry anger, it's usually because we don't get what we want. There's something we want, right? And uh, we want it so much that we're willing to sin in order to get it, or sin because we can't get it, and we are wrongly, unbiblically angry. On the other hand, when we're angry because God doesn't get what he wants, in other words, when we're angry because somebody violates the revealed will of God, then chances are that's the right kind of anger. I'm going to talk more about that in a bit, but for right now, let's just, let me just give these to you and then we'll unpack them a little bit later. We're going to take a look at this verse in James just a few minutes because I think it's key to helping us understand where anger comes from. Um, when we are sinfully angry, it's, oh, by the way, what kind of anger is it when you're angry that somebody sinned against God, but the sin was also against you? Is that righteous anger or is that sinful anger? It's both, yeah. And so, you know, the Bible says, when that happens, sometimes we have no choice but to go talk to the person about their sin. Right? We, we're supposed to overlook the small stuff, cover it in love, but you know, sometimes it's just too big to overlook or it keeps on happening. We try to cover it in love and the other person keeps on throwing the covers off by doing it again and again and again. And so we have to go and talk to the other person. Well, if you have sinful anger in your heart, you're going to put your foot in your mouth and have to go and apologize probably. So what you have to do is get your heart in such a state as quickly as possible so you can be sure that you have a whole lot more of the right kind of anger than the wrong kind of anger. And we'll talk about how to do that. In, in the case of unholy anger, it's indicative of the fact that I'm being the boss of my life. In the case of holy anger, it's indicative of the fact that Christ is the Lord of my life. In the case of sinful anger, my will is being violated. In the case of righteous anger, God's will is being violated in the case of sinful anger, the motive is some kind of idolatrous desire. There's something I want, and it may be a good thing, as we'll see, but I want it so much that I either sin in order to get it or I sin because someone's kept me from having it. And in case of righteous anger, our motive is the glory of God. Okay, number two. 
Gentleness is not allowing any desire to become so deep-rooted that it produces anger, either in an attempt to obtain the desire or as a result of not being able to obtain it. Again, there's a very helpful passage in Scripture. It's uh, James chapter 4. This is, James is probably the first book of the New Testament that was written. And um, the Christians to whom James was writing were having some pretty serious conflicts with each other. In fact, in chapter 4, he, he actually uses the words wars and battles. He uses wartime terms to describe what the Christians were doing with each other. And he asks and he answers his own question. He says, what is the source of quarrels or wars, the new King James says, and conflicts or fights among you? And then he answers his own question to reveal exactly what's causing the conflict, the anger in their hearts. He says, isn't the source, isn't the reason you guys are getting angry with each other is because of the pleasures, some of your Bibles say pleasures, some of your Bibles say desires, some of your Bibles may say lusts that are at war in your members. We have angry quarrels with each other because our pleasures, our desires have become so intense that they're waging wars in our members. Now, the word for desire here is the Greek word epithumia, and most of the time in the Bible, it's talking about an evil desire, but there are a few times in Scripture where the word actually talks about a normal, natural desire. And so that's where we, we get hung up because we get angry because we have a desire, and it's a good desire. All I want is my kids to obey me. All I want is my parents to be reasonable. All I want is for my wife to talk to me with respect the way the Bible says in at least 16 places that she should. All I want is my husband to live with me in an understanding way and to communicate with me what's wrong with that. Well, it's fine to have a good desire, but if you want that good desire so much that you're willing to sin in order to get it, or to sin by getting angry because you're not able to have it, then it's a pretty good bet that at that moment your desire for that good thing is sinful. Not because this verse appears in the Bible all of a sudden it says, you shall not want your husband to talk to you, you shall not want your children to obey you, you shall not want your wife to respect you, but because at that moment you wanted that good thing so much that you became angry and sinned because you couldn't get what you wanted, even though what you wanted on the face of it was not a sinful thing. So when our desires, good as they may be, become so strong that they wage a military campaign in our hearts. And by the way, there's a, there's an, uh, there's a Hebrew word. There's a Hebrew word for war that literally means Actually, it's not literal. That means, the definition of which is to wage a military campaign. But the etymological uh, meaning of the word is to be dug in. It's to be entrenched. And so, I mean, that's a good way to look at this. I have a desire, and I'm not just holding that desire. Yeah, it'd be nice if my wife would, or nice if my kids would. I should teach them to. But that desire is dug in, and you're not going to let it go, Right? And when someone tries to take that out of your hand, you're going to lose it, right? So that's one way that I like to look at this whole idea of at war in your members. So when our desires, as good as they may be, become so strong that they wage a military campaign in our hearts, otherwise lawful desires become sinful. Idolatrous desires, not because they're all of a sudden become sinful, but because they're desired inordinately. James continues to focus on the Christian's motives by unpacking in more detail what he just said. You lust, a different word than epithemia. Um, that, uh, yeah, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious. And he just goes on. But the point I want to make is that 
one of the ways you can know that you have sinful anger is when you get angry over things uh, that you want more than you should and you're kept from having them. Now the best evidence of um, you're making an idol out of something is when you get angry if you're prevented from having it. So, um, let's use an example. So I, uh, as, as you already know, I like to fish, I like to fly fish. So let's suppose um, it's, uh, oh, and we all know, you know that fishing is not a sin, right? It's not a sinful desire to go fishing, right? In fact, those of us who understand the Hebrew and the Greek understand that fishing is the biblical sport, right? <laughs> so in Georgia, um, there's a trout season. And um, let's suppose, it, it starts in the spring, and let's suppose uh, I've been looking forward to the first day of trout season. I took the day off, and I'm going to go fishing. And... Um, go to sleep early that night and wake up four o'clock the next morning and all of a sudden I feel this hand on my wrist as I try to get out of bed holding me back. And, and I say, what is it, honey? And she says, um, Lou, I hate to tell you this, but do you remember last night I told you the girls and I weren't feeling well? Yeah. Well, Lou, I don't know how to tell you. I mean, I, I know it's the first day of fishing and everything else, but I mean, we've been up all night. I'm nauseous. I can't drive. Is there any way that you can stay back for a couple of hours and take us to the doctor's office? No. What if I said to her, and this didn't exactly happen this way, just for the record, <laughs> but what if I said to her, um, honey, you knew that you were sick yesterday, right? Yeah? Well, look, honey, today's my, my fishing day. I'm sorry, but I, I've got to go fishing. You know, you're going to have to figure out some other way to go to the doctor's office. Well, you know, at that moment, then my desire to go fishing becomes sinful. Why? Not because all of a sudden the Bible says you shouldn't want to go fishing or enjoy fishing. You know, I might glorify God when I go fishing as much as I can, right? I thank the Lord for all the, the time off and, you know, for the beauty of his creation and for any fish I catch and, you know, ultimately eat, right? It's a God-glorifying thing. But at that moment, my desire for fishing becomes sinful because I wanted it so much that it caused me, or tempted me at least, since this story didn't really happen, uh, to, um, tempted me to neglect my biblical responsibilities of taking care of my wife. But let's suppose I do the right thing. And I say, oh, okay. It's four o'clock now. What time is Doc in the Box open? Uh, seven o'clock. All right, look. Let's get everybody up by 6.15. Get in the car by 6.45. We'll, it's 15 minutes there. We'll get there five minutes early, and we'll be the first one in, hopefully the first one out, and I'll only have to meet a, miss a few hours of fishing. Great. Okay. So we get up. We get in the car, and we're off to the doctor's office. But let's suppose there are like four bodies of water between my house and Doc in the Box. And go over the first one, it's a little pond, and I'm doing okay. And then I go over another one, it's a big lake, and I'm starting to feel a little oozy, but, you know, it's okay. But then we go over the stream. And let's suppose I turn to her, and I say, you know, I really can't believe you did this to me. What are you talking about? You knew it was the first day of, of trout fishing. You knew you were sick yesterday. I cannot believe how inconsiderate of it was you not to go. Do you see all those people out there? Look at them all. They're stealing my fish. <laughs> well, as I said, that didn't happen exactly that way either. But, but you see how in a situation like that, my desire to go fishing can become so easily sinful because I was kept from having what I want. So we have to understand, you know, um, that when we get angry, that's why I said in the first session, you know, 
Why are you angry? And why is your countenance falling? When someone gets angry at you, when you get angry, ask yourself, okay, I'm angry. Somebody sinned. If they haven't sinned, chances are your anger is off base. Okay. Now, so sinful anger is sort of like God's smoke detector. It lets us know that we're coveting something to the point of idolatry. Smoke detector, right? Twice in the New Testament, idolatry is connected to covetousness. Look at this. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. So when we find ourselves getting angry in the midst of conflict, it's wise to ask ourselves a couple of questions. What is it that my opponent is not giving me? What is it that I want that my opponent is not giving me? And is what I want something that God is also wanting? And if the answer to either of these questions is no or not necessarily, it may be wise to evaluate your argument in light of Scripture. I mean, they are the things you're telling yourself. Number three, gentleness is knowing how to harness righteous anger so that it may be used to attack or destroy only those things that God would approve. Whenever there is a, let me leave that there for another second for you. Whenever there is a problem in our, our lives, there's great potential for us to become angry. I mean, think about it. When you become angry, what, what happens? Your adrenal glands uh, secrete adrenaline into your system, and the adrenaline gives you all of this energy. And you have all of this energy now. You know, your respiration goes up, your perspiration goes up, your heartbeat goes up, your blood pressure goes up, right? Well, that's a God thing. He put that inside of you. And so why? Why did God do that, right? So again, whenever there's a problem, there's the potential for us to become angry. Think of it as a circuit breaker in your home. When you're communicating without anger, the circuits are open and the electricity is flowing. When you or the one with whom you're conversing, well, actually, what I need to do first before I read that is talk about the two different extremes, okay? So you've got this adrenaline that's in your system, this problem, and you're trying to solve the problem. There are two extreme um, approaches that people tend to take with their anger. Two sinful extremes. Some people, when they become angry, they clam up. They internalize their anger, okay? What do people in the Northwest do, for example, when they clam up, when they internalize their anger? Let's, let's, let's start with the children. What do children do? Well, internalizing the, the other extreme, let me show you here, the other extreme is going to be blow up. But we're on, we're on clam up. You know, a lot of times we think, well, clamming up is okay because of all the Proverbs that say, basically, it's better to keep your mouth shut and make people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. But the fact of the matter is a whole chapter in the Conflict Resolution book. It's called Love Communication. It shows the selfish nature of not communicating. And I really hit the man hard here because, you know, as men, we're to be the initiators. And if there's anything that God wants us to initiate, it's communication. And sometimes that means that we have to start a conflict that could result in an argument. Now, women can initiate too, but God basically made Adam to be the initiator and Eve to be the responder. So for us as men, guys, it's really bad for us to clam up when God says we should speak. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? In, in many cases, to not communicate is just as sinful as to communicate more than you should. But anyway, let's get back to the story here. So what do, what do we do in the Midwest? 
when we clam up? What do children do? They sulk, right? They pout. They don't obey. What, what do they do? They withdraw. Boy, usually I get more of a response here. This must be the, this must be the Northwest thing to do is to withdraw when you get... We're angry. <laughs> Silent treatment. Yeah, the cold shoulder. What's the, what's, the, what's the biblical term for the cold shoulder? What's the biblical descriptive term? When you, when you give someone the cold shoulder, why is it wrong and what's the sin involved with giving someone the cold shoulder? Well, sir, that's what, that's what it is. Is there, is there a scripture for withdrawing affection? Help me out. Okay, yeah, that's good. That's not what I was thinking, but I think you may be right about that. Here's what I'm looking at. Let me pick on Pastor Joe. <laughs> you turkey. I've told you I don't know how many times in how many different ways how much it really bothers me when you do that or don't do that. And you don't get it. You don't have a clue. So the only thing I know to do is to give you a taste of your own medicine and maybe in an hour or two or a day or two, when I think you have an inkling of an understanding of how much it bugs me when you do that or don't do that, maybe I'll start talking to you again. What is that? What is that? Abuse. <laughs> <laughs> That'll fit. No, but let's, let's it's vengeance, right? It, it's, it's being vindictive being vindictive. Did you find that passage, by the way? Okay. Um, all right. The other extreme is blowing up. What do people in the Northwest do when they blow up? Road rage. Is that a big problem out here? What, what else? What do kids do? What children do? They yell, right? They, they, um, they throw, they, they unfriend you, yeah. Actually, that's probably more of a clam-up thing, but yeah. Uh, they hit, they kick, they bite. What, what do adults do? Come on, you guys, are, you guys are trying to make me think that you don't get angry. What do... What do Blame shifting, raising your voice, calling the other person names, using biting sarcasm. Anyone else want to? What passive aggressiveness? Yeah, and again, that could, depending on how it is, that could, that could um, and again, being passive aggressive is, is vindictive. So that can actually go in the blow up or the, or the clam up. Okay, so do we understand that both clamming up and blowing up are not what God wants us to do? Right? Okay. But I said God gave us this ability to get angry, and it's in the Bible more than any other emotion. And yes, I should say that um, most of the anger that we experience is of the unholy variety. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but, you know, it's relatively hard to come by. But nevertheless, there is such a thing. So what does God want us to do with the anger? What does he want us to do with all this energy? He wants us as Christians to learn how to get the, to get the anger under the control of the Holy Spirit and directed towards the problem, right? It's like he's giving you a dart. And if you... If you internalize the anger, it's like you're swallowing the dart and you're hurting yourself. You do hurt the other person. And by the way, a lot of times people think that by clamming up, they're, uh, they're, doing the, um, they're doing the right thing. And what they don't realize is what they're doing is throwing, they think they're throwing uh, water on the other person's fire. But a lot of times by clamming up, 
you're throwing gasoline on the other person's fire. So you have to learn how to communicate. So when you, when you clam up, it's like you're swallowing the dart. You hurt yourself, you hurt the other person. When you blow up, you're throwing the dart at the other person, you're hurting the other person, but you're hurting yourself as well. And you're, of course, you're not doing what God wants you to do. And so God wants you to throw the dart at the problem, right? Now, because most of the time our problems have to do with other people, right? usually what makes us angry is not something, but what somebody else did or didn't do. There's something that's usually, almost always, necessary to get the problem from our, to get the anger from our heart to the problem. What is it that God says we usually have to do when we're angry to attack the problem? That is generated by other people. Yeah, we've got to communicate, right? I mean, think about it. When you clam up, you're not communicating. I mean, you're communicating something, but you're not really communicating. You blow up, you're miscommunicating, right? So communication is like a big deal. Now, here's the bottom line. If you have an anger problem, if your children have an anger problem, there is no hope for them to overcome their anger. Unless and until they learn how to communicate. Just that simple. You've got to learn how to communicate biblically without clamming up, without blowing up. That's why there's so much in the Bible about communication. Now, sometimes people blow up and then they clam up and sometimes they clam up and then they blow up. So you can kind of mix and match these. Yes? Yes? Um, yeah. Again, so the question is, you know, it's easier, although... It is easy to communicate sometimes with people that we know, except that with people that we know, it's easier for us to sin because we're not quite as careful, right? I mean, you ever been in a, like, knockdown drag out with your wife or your husband, and then the phone rings? Hello? Oh, hello, Mrs. Neighborhood Gossip. How are you today? So it's true that, you know, um, with our, it's true that we can control ourselves more than we think, but with people in our home, the tendency is to, is to not be so careful because we think, we falsely believe that we can get away with it. Now, the question that you ask is, you know, what about people that you don't know? Well, part of that depends on whether they're believers or not. Um, if they're believers, okay, um, and it's a, a sin, a habitual kind of sin, especially you can go and talk to them just brother to brother, sister to sister kind of a thing. If they're unbelievers, you, you may go to them in some cases, but you're not going to be able to use the scriptures, right? You can't cast your pearls before swine and give that which is holy to the dog. There's actually an appendix in the book about resolving conflicts, just some basic principles with people who are unbelievers. But you talk to God, um, you may be able to talk to them. You may um, be able to talk to other people in positions of authority. You have several other options. But um, when you're dealing with Christians, then it's usually wrong uh, to uh, not communicate um, for a long period of time. If, if you can give me maybe a... Uh, Sort of a scenario, I might be able to give you a more specific answer than that, but you know, I can just give you some basic guidelines. Right. Well, again, it, it, the thing is, if we're talking about Christians it's wrong for them to be standoffish. If we're talking about someone that's not a believer, you know, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God 
their foolishness to him he cannot understand because they're spiritually discerned. So we're kind of limited. We're kind of handcuffed to a certain extent when that happens. So there's often some things we can at least, you know, we have a few cards we can play. But when you're dealing with a believer who habitually sins and who is a Bible-believing Christian, who's a member of a Bible-believing church, then, you know, in many cases, it's wrong for us to uh, allow that sin to continue without confronting them. And there are lots of different ways to confront people and to convict them of their sin. I mean, my job as a counselor, I've got to convict people every day of my life. It's part of what I do. I've got to try to convince them that there's sinful behavior. And there are some people that, you know, are kind of two by four people. I can just take the Bible and him and off the table with two by four and they take it really well. There are other people I can't, I wouldn't dare to do that. You know, I mean, I've got to convict them very gently, very quietly to sort of ask them questions, you know. But it is something that Christians are to do. There's a whole chapter in the book about this. You know, we think that conviction is something that the Holy Spirit does. It is. We think that conviction is something that the Bible does. It is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for conviction, right? But conviction is something that one person does to another person, right? It's a legal term to to persuade someone that he's committed a crime. If your brother sins, it says go tell him his fault, but it's the word convict him. Paul tells Timothy, rebuke, convict, exhort, It's the verbal form of the word conviction. It's a verb. It's something you do. Convict him with great patience and careful instruction. So it's it's a look. It's a matter of um, your conscience being programmed so that you are not easily able to not speak because you know it's a sin of omission if you don't speak to someone that God says you must speak to. Now, you know, you overlook the first time, you overlook the second time. Obviously, if you convicted every person for every sin they committed against you, I mean, there'd be some days you wouldn't have enough time to finish the list of all the people that sinned against you, let alone to go and convict them. But it's the habitual things, it's the regular things, it's the pattern of sins, especially in our close relationships, especially in our families, that, and with our, with our children, that we have to learn how to use the scriptures to bring about conviction. Okay. So I was saying sometimes you blow up, sometimes you clam up, but the bottom line is we have got to learn how to communicate or we will not be able to resolve conflicts biblically. When Kim and I are having a conflict, we each try to express our differing opinions to each other in the hopes that one of us will persuade the other to his or her point of view. So we banter back and forth. She tries to convince me, I try to convince her, back and forth we go. Maybe it'll take five minutes to resolve the conflict, maybe it'll take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. But the hope is, by the end of the conflict, she persuades me, I persuade her, we meet in the middle, or we come to the conclusion, you know, there's no reason why a husband and wife have to agree on this. It's not that big of a biblical deal that we have to agree about it, right? But we have to go back and forth until the conflict is resolved. And if we don't go back and forth and we don't have the conflict, there's not going to be a resolution. Honey, are we lost? No, I know exactly where we are. Uh, but we've passed this gas station six times already. Actually, it was three. I know it's around here somewhere. Well, maybe we should ask for directions. That's not necessary. It's around here somewhere. Okay, but we're already 10 minutes late. I, I think it's just around the corner. I think we're lost. We're not lost. I thought you said you know how to get there. Well, I do know how to get there from work. There's that gas station again. Would you please? I think I'm going to go in and ask for directions. All right. So back and forth we banter, and then you know, hopefully, before too long, one or the other, we're on the same page. But what happens if one of us, out of anger, just breaks the circuit? Now think about the circuit breaker in your home. You know, the, the electricity's flowing really, really well, and all of a sudden somebody gets angry and just poof, breaks the circuit, kind of walks away. Or the other person withdraws, clams up, and just very quietly disconnects and very softly breaks the circuit, right? 
And of course, my job as a counselor is to hold the wires together until we can get some communication going. But what happens if someone prematurely breaks the circuit? The conflict doesn't get finished, right? Or the other person, out of fear, prematurely withdraws. No use trying to talk to him. He's not going to listen to me anyway. What happens if someone blows up, someone clams up, someone out of fear walks away? Conflict never gets resolved. And, and there is no resolution. And so it's really important to learn how to call the other person back to the table when there's a conflict. Blowing up and clamming up are not biblical responses to conflict. Both reactions break the communication circuit which cause the lights to go out immediately. When one person trips the circuit breaker, the other ought to make every effort, right, to switch it back on immediately by gently calling his counterpart back to the conflict and if necessary, by calling him to repentance. In other words, if he's sinning or she's sinning as the case may be. This can be done in a variety of ways. Essentially, the person who has not blown the circuit may urge the person who has to redo his sinful response, ask forgiveness for it in certain cases, come back to the table recommitted to resolving the conflict according to biblical principles. You know, agree with your adversary quickly, Jesus said, while you're in the way with him, right? If you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, like drop what you're doing. Like get it resolved as quickly as possible, certainly before Sunday if at all possible. Right? I mean, God doesn't want there to be loose ends flopping in the breeze between Christians. He want, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, Christian, live at peace with all men. All men means believers and unbelievers. As, even with unbelievers, as much as depends on us, we, try, we have to be the ones to, to initiate and to try to be peacemakers. Right? So what can be done, what can be said to call the blower upper back to the table? Here are just some examples. This, this, is a, this is a template. There are better ways to do it. Hundreds of other options, but just to kind of give you a flavor of how you can do it. Here's some options. So the, clan, the, the, the person who has been blown up at can say, look, I think I know why you're upset. I shouldn't have said that. I mean, if you, if you recognize that you did something sinful to provoke the other person, you need to take the hit for it first, right? That was, and then you identify in biblical terms the exact nature of your own sin. That was selfish. That was not honest. Um, that was, you know, sarcastic. That was disrespectful. I was impatient with you. Whatever. Just fill in the biblical term. And it's important that you identify your sin in biblical terms. Because that communicates to the other person, oh, he gets it. Not only does he know he sins, he's, he's figured it out biblically, he knows what's wrong with it, and you know, maybe now he'll think about it, think twice before he does it again in the future because he's owned it in biblical terms. When you just said, I'm sorry, then you know, the other person doesn't know if you really understand what you've done wrong. Will you please forgive me and allow me to try to make my point in a different way? Now again, this gets back to humility, right? Humility begets humility. There's a, there's a place in the book, I think it's in this chapter. You know, you can be in the midst of, of a pretty severe, pretty dragged out conflict. 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. And if you humble yourself, you can turn the conflict around by putting your neck on the chopping block first. Look, we've been at this for, for 35 minutes. You think I'm to blame. I think you're to blame. I'll go first. And again, gentlemen, this is probably more your place than your wife's place, but ladies, this will work for you too, because right? humility begets humility. Look, I know that I was this, that, and the other, you know, in biblical terms. Um, I really was harsh. I really was impatient. I interrupted you six times. I answered a matter before I heard it. Uh... I probably was less than honest with you and I was proud and defensive. 
uh, will you forgive me for that? Yeah? Anything else I, I did? Yeah, you were this, that, and that. Okay, you're right. I see that. Would you forgive me? Yes. And then when, when you do that, typically, humility begets humility, and the other person will be willing to say, okay, now let me tell you what I've done wrong. And if not, then you can say, okay, is there anything else I need to ask you? Yes, no. Okay, well, how about you? Can you think of anything? Well, maybe this and maybe that. Okay. I think you're right. All right, will you forgive me? Yeah. How about this? How about that? You know, you can, you can turn things around often by exercising humility. You're quite upset. If I've sinned somehow, please tell me and I'll ask for forgiveness. But please, let's not end our conversation this way. Please come back to the table. May I pray for us? And then can we please try to get this conflict resolved in a God-honoring way? The Bible tells us to get our differences resolved quickly. Can we please try a little longer to get on the same page? Okay, so now, now the clamor upper again, the same idea. I think I know why you're troubled, whatever other descriptive term is appropriate. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. It was fill in the blank, biblical term. Will you please forgive me and allow me to try making my point in a different way? You seem rather frustrated with me. If I've somehow sinned, please tell me. I'll be happy to ask your forgiveness, but please let's not uh, stop trying to resolve this issue. By the way, I give more examples in the book than I, I am in this presentation. Please don't stop now. Can we pray and ask the Lord to help us get through this in a way that pleases Him? How about we simply take a 15-minute break, spend a little time in private prayer, then come back to the table for one more round of talks? I think we will both do better if we had some time to compose our thoughts. And the Bible says the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. So you can invoke that scripture. Look, we've been at this for 20 minutes. Why don't we take a break? Let's think through this, you know, calm down, make sure our attitudes are right, and let's ponder how we can answer this. And by the way, you know, speaking of Ephesians 4, uh, let not the sun go down on your wrath. A lot of people think, you know, that means you have to get the conflict resolved before you go to bed. Uh, no. God doesn't want you up till 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, for five hours trying to unpack a conflict. You get the relationship resolved. Honey, we've been at this for an hour and a half. Look, um, you know, it's late. We probably need to get some sleep. I commit myself tomorrow. It's really important to give people a rain check. I mean, giving people a rain check is really important, right? Um, get the relationship resolved, and then maybe tomorrow morning, Tomorrow night, whenever, we'll finish the conversation. So you have to get the relationship resolved. You don't necessarily have to get the conflict resolved before the sun goes down. All right. Again, there's a, there's a lot more about anger um, in the book that um, I don't have... Uh, time to go into, but I, I do, before we go on to the, to the next one, um, I want to do some Q&A. Does anybody have any, and this is really, really important, so I'd like to take as much time as necessary to, um, to try to be clear about this. So we have probably 10 minutes before we have to take a break, is that right? So rather than start the next one, let's just go ahead and do some Q&A about anger. Yes? So as a guide to further the communication, my tendency would be, let's talk it through logically, how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. The other person might not want to further communicate that way. So how do you, if, if you're taking different approaches to what you think is communicating, mm -hmm. how do you come to an agreement on an approach? <clears throat> Um, um, let, let me answer that question first from the person who um, who is frustrated okay and who maybe is just not wanting at that moment to resolve the conflict that's where you come up with the, with the rain check honey I know you really want to talk about this. 
I know that I have a biblical obligation to talk to you about this, and I have every intention of doing so. But right now, I really am, and then you give the, you know, the biblical, I'm really um, not thinking straight, or, you know, I'm really angry at you, and I really need to work on my anger. Is there anything else I ask you? No, it's me, okay. So basically, you give the other person a rain check, but you've got to communicate, look, I know we have to deal with this. I'm willing to deal with this according to biblical principle. So if you're the one who, has to, who, who just is having a hard time continuing to uh, communicate according to biblical principle, you've got to own it, and you've got to commit yourself to it, and you've got to give the other person a commitment and a rain check. Now, you know, the, there, there are a lot of different options for what you do when you're on the receiving end of that. Okay, well, if you don't want to talk right now, but would you agree that this is something we biblically have to talk about? I don't know, I think so. Well, I, honey, I think that we do have to talk about this. So, you know, I, I wish you'd give it 10 or 15 more minutes, but if you're too, whatever, then that's fine. But can, can you give me a rain check? Can we commit to doing this, you know, tomorrow morning or whatever? So you ask the other person for a rain check. I think it's always good to say, okay, before we, we, uh, before we wrap this up, um, do I need to ask your forgiveness for anything? You know? Now, you know, if you want the, if you want the, <laughs> what's that? What's, you, 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 you have to work at, this has to be real life, I and mean, you have to work at, you know, um, you have to work at uh, applying the scriptures so that over time this becomes real life. If you want the nuclear bomb, sweetheart, I really think we need to continue this conversation. Um, you obviously are too angry to communicate right now. I'm going to go in the living room and I'll be praying for you. <laughs> when, when you're... When, when you're willing to continue this conversation according to the biblical principles, come on inside. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, you know, you, you go into overcome evil with good and you bless the socks off of him or off of her and you make her tea and you, you, know, you let her know or you let him know that you're trying to love. But somewhere between those two, you have a range of different options. But the bottom line is, you know, we have to call the other person to repentance. It's just really, really important. You know, one time, I was really angry at something Sophia did, my eldest daughter. I don't remember what it was. I know I was angry at her, and I, I said, go to your room and prepare for spanking. She said, uh, okay, Dad, but aren't you a little bit too angry to spank me right now? <laughs> and, and, well... I said, I am angry. Go to your room and pray for me. <laughs> the, 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 the point is, you know, I, I taught my girls from a young age to talk to me about my sin, provided they could do it respectfully and provided they can use the scriptures. I know you, you guys have known me less than an hour, but I think you probably figured out, you know, I'm pretty verbal, I'm pretty opinionated, I have a pretty good handle on the Bible. What you don't know is I, I really do like to argue. And so I can be like a locomotive going down the track at 200 miles an hour, and my wife can stop me on a dime by going like this because, and I taught her and I want her to do that, because I maybe want to argue with you or her or whoever, but I'm usually not willing to argue with God. And the scriptures are useful for convicting us. And we need to learn how to let the scriptures be the arbiter in our conversations. And yes, sometimes a husband has to convict his wife and a wife has to convict her husband. You are, gentlemen, you're her spiritual leader. How are you going to wash her in the water of the word if you're not talking to her about her sin? And ladies, you're your husband's helper suitable. What does God want you to help him with more than the habits and patterns of sin in his life? You have a mouth, you have a brain, you have a Bible, right? You just can't allow fear to keep you from doing what God wants you. Like I said, I'd rather be in you know, my wife's doghouse than in God's doghouse. There is, 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. 
if I love God and if I love my wife, you know, sooner or later, you know, hopefully sooner, I'm going to muster up the courage to talk to her as gently as I can about her sin. And if she gets angry at me, she gets angry at me. I mean, I'm, my conscience is going to tell me, Lou, this is not fun, but this is what you have to do. Now, maybe it's a matter of timing. Maybe right then and there is not the time to talk. You know, often I have to start by acknowledging my own sin, get the beam out of my own eye first. But the bottom line is, I'm a Christian, she's a Christian. If there's something between us, we have to talk about it sooner rather than later. Does that answer your question? Okay, who's got the next question? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 sure. At the bottom, here's the short answer, okay? The short answer is you have to learn to give her your shoulder before you give her your mouth, okay? Guys tend to be troubleshooters. Women want us not necessarily to fix the problem. They want us, they want before we fix the problem, they want to be sure that we understand the problem and understand the impact that our behavior has on them. There was a point in our marriage where my wife's favorite ver- verse to quote me was Proverbs 18.2. A fool has no delight in understanding but only in giving his own opinion. And she would say to me, Lou, are you real? She wouldn't quote the verse necessarily at the time, but she would say, Lou, do you really, are you really trying to understand me? You just want me to understand your point of view. Yes, dear. Okay, let me understand it better. Because again, we, you know, we, we have a responsibility as men especially to understand our wives, right? Live with them according to knowledge. Live with them in an understanding way. Now, there's a little bit maybe of biology behind this. There's a part, there's a, the part of the brain that connects the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere it's called the corpus callosum. And the woman's is much, much larger. If I showed you a picture, a schematic or a picture of a woman's brain, a man's brain, you'd all be able to say, well, this is the woman and this is the man because the woman's brain callosum is bigger. And the theory is that, well, that facilitates communication between the hemispheres, okay? Which may account for why women, and this may be a cultural thing, it may be a biological thing, I don't know for sure, but it may account for why women statistically talk more any given day, at least American women, than than, you know, men do. Well, the theory is that um, we can use both sides of our brains at the same time. And that women may tend to um, use one side of the brain, use the math side, uh, when they should use the verbal side, and vice versa. Now, there are benefits and advantages, you know, to that. You say good for women. Well, yes, in some ways it's good. In some ways it slows them down. They may use their math skills, the math side of the brain, to solve verbal uh, the verbal side of the brain to solve math problems and slows them down. And the bottom line is, okay, our brains are wired differently. So it's important for us, and, and, and the idea is that we can often, in our own mind, um, solve the problem without talking about it. But the theory is that women can solve the problem better by just talk. How many times have you talked to your wife and you sat there and listened, and by the time it was over, she said, oh, that really helps me. Thanks for talking to me. And you think, I, I, I didn't say anything yet, <laughs> right? Well, again, it may be, and I'm being subjunctive here because we really don't know, you know, how much of it is genetic, how much of it is biologic, how much of it is cultural, but the bottom line is... Um, what I encourage men to do is to listen, understand them, and then typically, once they've verbalized it, a lot of times they'll come to the, they'll solve it themselves just by having talked to you about it. And then, usually, when they're done, if they haven't figured it out, then they'll say, what do you think, honey? That's the time to give your opinion. So you have to be careful. I mean, ladies, is that basically true? all those feminine laughs. Um, yeah, so I mean, basically, um, you want to, um, you know, it, 
I, I know that you want to troubleshoot, and by asking questions, you can help them troubleshoot. But usually, until they ask you for your opinion, it's generally best to let them talk, or just simply to ask them, well, I have some ideas, you want to know my thoughts on the matter. But it, it really comes down, here's the bottom line. It really has to do with our next character trait. It's patience. If you with their communication, one way or the other, either they'll figure it out themselves or they'll ask you, but if you impatiently just go into troubleshoot mode, answer a matter before you hear it, um, because you'd rather watch the Super Bowl or whatever, get something to eat, you know. And again, if you have to give them a rain check, give them a rain check, but you're probably going to mess things up. So I, I, I think the key is being patient and learning how to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Yes? What if you're not married? What if you're not married and, like, you're having a conflict with, like, male to male and female to female? Because a lot of this has been on marriage counseling, but, like, some of us are only teenagers and we're definitely not married. So, like, then, <laughs> then, then how do you solve conflicts? Okay, this, this material is, like, the best premarital counseling stuff you can imagine. This learning, learning to have these four qualities is that building these qualities into your life right now is not only going to prepare you for marriage, it's going to help you get along because it's the same thing. It's the same thing with all conflicts. To the degree that you're humble and gentle and patient and forbearing, you're going to find you're able to resolve conflicts. And you're going to find that the people you have conflicts with, almost certainly, if you stopped and zoomed out and analyzed it, those people that you're having a lot of conflicts with have a serious problem in one of these four areas. And so if nothing else, you can realize, you know what, this person is a proud person, this person is an impatient person, um, I'm only going to be able to go so far until this person learns how to be more patient or more forbearing or whatever. But um, this has great application to you, whether you're married, whether you're single, especially if you're single, this is great stuff to work on because it's going to make you a better wife, a better husband when you get married. And if you don't have these things, you're going to have conflicts with your husband or with your wife. It's really, really good stuff. Plus, there's all kinds of like, and I'm not going to have time to go into it, there's all kinds of other really good practical stuff in the book that will help you as a single person too. But what if it's like a conflict with your friend and not like your to-be like husband or wife? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> Well, again, that's where um, the principles, the prerequisites are important. You know, you have to start with humility. First question is, okay, she's upset with me. Did I cause this? Did I, did, you know, is there some kind of attitude? Maybe I have to go and ask her, look, you know, the last few weeks we've gotten together, we've had conflicts. Is there something I need to apologize to you for? It's a matter of patience. It's a matter of forbearance. It's a matter of gentleness. It's just a matter of trying to evaluate yourself and then maybe even trying to evaluate the other person. But it's applicable to... And remember, this is not a marriage passage. This is a passage for all of us. Make every effort to get along with each other. You and your girlfriend. You have to, if you're a Christian and she's a Christian, you've got to make every effort to get along with it. And these qualities will help you. Okay? Yes? Okay. With relationships in general, what do you do when, it, when the same conflict comes up again and again? Um, the question, yeah, okay. When the same conflict comes up again and again, the first thing, you know, is the safest thing to do is ask yourself, okay, am I doing something? Am I, am I the one who's provoking the other person to anger? Um, if it is something that keeps on happening again and you have a good relationship, especially if the other person is a Christian, then you may have to do what Jesus says and go talk to the other person. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that about the pattern of, um, uh, of the conflict to see if perhaps what's going on is a problem on the other person's part. But if the other person is a Christian and if it's a pattern, you're probably at some point going to be obligated to try to talk to them about it. Now, they may not hear you, but if you've examined your own heart and you're pretty sure it's not you, you may have to actually go to your sister or brother and try to talk to them 
about the problem. And that's hard and that's scary, but, you know. So one time, listen to this. So one time, um, my daughter was like in the third grade, Gabby, and um, we get a telephone call, and it's her best friend's mom. And um, she's all apologizing, and we don't know what's going on. And come to find out that her friend um, offended her at school. She went to Christian school at the time. Gabby comes home from school, doesn't talk to Kim and I about it, picks up the phone, calls her friend, convicts her of what she did at school, brings the girl to tears. The girl asks Gabby's forgiveness. Gabby forgave her, never talked to us about it, and she just kind of forgot about it. The mother sees the girl crying and says, what's going on? And she says, well, Gabby called me today and she confronted me and I had to ask her forgiveness. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is even little kids who are Christians can apply these principles because they're biblical. Okay, was there one more? Barry, why don't we, uh, I know you have a question, but we'll hold that till our Q&A session later. The reason for that, just simply because uh, we do have people that will be waiting for us at the zip line and at our scheduled events um, at that time. Okay. Uh, doctor, if you could, if you could close this session with prayer, and then I have some announcements uh, before we all take a break. Okay. Father, we realize that anger is a real problem that all of us struggle with. Realize that you've given a lot of space to it in your word. We realize, Lord, that apart from your enabling power, your Holy Spirit, we would not ever be able, really on our own, to, to be gentle, uh, but would be angry and harsh and impatient. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd give us all the grace and the wisdom to be able to identify our own sin, to know where we're being harsh, where we're being angry, where we're being self-righteous, and um, by your grace through your Spirit, little by little, be able to become gentle, to have a gentle and a quiet spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.